We were talking about purpose or the telic analysis of a passage, a preaching portion. And I want to go on with that thought today and say that telos, purpose, intent that the Holy Spirit had in giving a particular portion of Scripture, ought to be the controlling factor as you put together a message and deliver it. When I was studying with Andrew Blackwood in the field of homiletics, Andrew Blackwood used to say, well, ordinarily preach the paragraph. Now that word ordinarily was his out because there are very few paragraphs, for example, in the uh, book of Proverbs after chapter 10. And uh, that works well in some portions of Scripture, but it's something of an arbitrary decision to preach paragraphs. I would like to give you a better, I think, way of determining a preaching portion, because you know you do have to decide from what portion of Scripture will I preach this week. Will it be a long section, a, a short section? How do I make that decision? I think telos helps us at this point. Any purpose unit may be preached for that intention of the Spirit in giving that particular unit of material. Of course, the overall telos of the Bible is to glorify God. Theoretically, you could preach a sermon on the Bible, therefore. When Jesus looked at the Bible, he, however, said that everything in the Old Testament hangs on two pegs, loving God and loving your neighbor as yourself. So again, we have a way of looking at the Bible that is large. But then under each of those uh, large sections, loving God, loving your neighbor, we have various books of the Bible. And as we noted yesterday, the Gospel of John, for example, has as its overall tell us that people may come to know Christ as their Savior. These things are written that you may believe and that believing you might have life through his name. That tell us, that overall tell us of the book of John ought to influence everything you preach from the book of John in some way or other. We don't just preach the signs in John's Gospel, for example, as interesting signs or the IMs as something that we want to list in some kind of a list, but we preach those things for the purpose for which they were given. And as we go through the Gospel of John, we see how the Lord Jesus leads the crowds and in particular leads his disciples to believing in him for whom he was, the Word manifest in flesh. And so the overall telos of the book ought to influence all that we do in any particular portion of that book. Take, for example, 1 John, which has as its telos a uh, thought beyond faith. It says that these things are written to you who believe that you may know that you have eternal life. Assurance is the reason and purpose for the, gospel, for the book of 1 John. There were a lot of Gnostics in that day who were confusing people. They were teaching that Jesus was not uh, manifest in the flesh. 
that the Christ came upon Jesus at the baptism but uh, left him uh, before the cross. And John is saying, no, uh, you don't have that kind of an uncertainty that these people are bringing into your lives. There is a certain fact about Jesus Christ. He is the Messiah who came not only water by water but also by blood. And so he's trying to establish their faith from the very beginning of that book so that there will be no uncertainty about their salvation, no unsettled doubts and questions in their mind that were raised by this heresy of the day that was creeping into the church. So the overall telos of the book of 1 John is to bring assurance. I once sat under the lectures of a man or the preaching of a man for a week at a Bible conference who used the book of 1 John to tear into the faith of people who he thought might be spurious. And the whole week, the intention of his messages was to break down false faith. Now, there's that element in 1 John, but that is not the purpose of the book. The purpose is to build solid faith on truth as it was proclaimed through and in Christ and by him. And so he was misusing that book, and people were adversely affected as a result of his misuse of that book. I personally had to put one young lady who had just recently come to faith in Christ back together again as he tore her and ripped her faith into shreds. You can destroy people's lives if you misuse the scriptures. And you will do harm if you misuse the scriptures. The scriptures either help or they harm. And they have power in both directions depending upon how they are used. Now, as we look at these, uh, this idea of telos, maybe what we need to see is that there are overarching tele, large telic portions. But then there are sub-tele beneath those and sub-sub-tele, that is, telic units. For example, on the book of 3 John, just to stay in this uh, area of John for a moment, I have a message on the whole book of 3 John, but I also have eight messages on the book of 3 John because there are smaller telic units that lead to the overall telos of that book. When you preach those smaller units, you ought to always keep in mind the larger purpose of the book. Let's, let's do that, for example, in the book of Jude just to um, look at a passage this morning. Turn to the first chapter of Jude, or the last if you prefer. It really doesn't matter. <clears throat> In verse 20 of the book of Jude, we read, You, dear friends, by building yourselves up in your most holy faith, through praying by the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in God's love. Now, some person might develop three messages from those three exhortations. To build yourself up in your most holy faith, to <clears throat> pray by the Holy Spirit, and to keep yourselves in God's love. But what makes your message about God's love, or about edification, or about prayer, 
different from the last six or eight messages on prayer, on edification, or on some other subject. How can you not just preach another just like the other? That's one of the problems that preachers seem to have. How can I say something fresh? And so they try to bring in all sorts of things from the outside. And sometimes those things from the outside are very helpful, and they sometimes illumine the passage and so forth. But that's not the fundamental way to bring freshness to your preaching. What puts the top spin on a particular message is the telos. You see, there's an overall purpose of this book. That overall purpose of Jude is to contend earnestly for the faith once for all given to the saints. That's why he wrote. He said he was going to write for a different purpose originally. He wanted to say some encouraging and faith-building words to the congregation uh, about their common salvation. But a message came to him saying, there's trouble, there's difficulty. The kind of things that Peter predicted are now taking place, and you need to do something about it. And so he crumpled up that piece of papyrus that he had been writing on, threw it away, and wrote instead about how to contend earnestly for the faith. And so as he contends earnestly for the faith and urges others to do so in this book, that's what you have to keep in mind as you preach each individual unit. Now, looking at these particular verses, for example, by, uh, he says, uh, but you, dear friends, by building yourselves up in your most holy faith, instead of just another message on edification, keep the overall telos in mind. You build yourself up in order that, as you go out to contend for the faith, you understand that faith thoroughly. You know what the Christian teaching is. When you deal with heretics, or as in this case, people who were being influenced by heretics and who were doubting and wondering and uh, getting themselves into difficulty over this false teaching that had come into the church, uh, as you deal with them, you understand your faith and you can propagate it in such a way that it is uh, convincing and powerful to those to whom you with whom you deal. So it's not just another message on edification, it's edification so that the Jehovah's Witness or the Mormon out there who has been influencing your people does not knock you off your props as you go out to contend. But you know your holy faith. You have been built up and edified in it so that you can present it with clarity and with power. And then as you go out to contend for the faith, it's not just another sermon on prayer, but you go out asking God to bless your efforts. You contend for the faith prayerfully. You go out to talk to people about the Lord Jesus Christ in the spirit of prayer, not in some uh, self-satisfied fashion, as though you were sufficient to make the difference. It's God who must make the difference, both in the people who are being influenced by the heretics and in the heretics themselves, if they should come to faith in Christ. And so you ask God to bless your efforts. You do not go out in your own strength or in your own wisdom, but you go out having asked God to give you what is necessary from his word to contend earnestly for the faith. And so you see, 
this overall telos has a lot to do with how you preach the smaller tele of the book. And as you go out to contend for the faith, you must keep yourselves in God's love. It's easy to go out and contend for the faith and become contentious while doing so. It's easy to go out and to win the battle and lose the people. It's easy to go out and to destroy rather than to build. And so you have to go out with love in your heart for those uh, who, with whom you are contending and especially for those who are being wrongly influenced by their heretical viewpoints. And so you see what puts the particular emphasis into your message that makes it fresh, that makes it unique, that makes it different from the last six messages on faith or on prayer or on uh, building yourselves up or on love or something of that nature is the telos, the purpose, the reason why this particular exhortation or that may be in a given passage of scripture. Telos then begins to control things, you see. What did the Holy Spirit have in mind? How did he want people to be different? How should people go away from your message uh, knowing something fresh that will change their lives in the weeks to come? Those are the kinds of questions you want to keep asking as you do your exegetical work, as you dig into all these uh, aspects of exegesis and hermeneutics that we talked about yesterday. All those things ought to lead to this final conclusion of what was the Spirit of God up to? How did he want people to be different as a result of hearing a message from this passage? You see then how telos can bring freshness to your preaching. Now there is not just necessarily one telos in a given book. There may be more than one. Take for example the book of Philippians. I identify at least four, there may be more, but at least four tele, overall tele, in this book. One was the gift that had been sent to Paul by the Philippian church and he wanted to thank them. And as he does so, he says a lot in those latter chapters of the book about uh, how God had blessed and how he was not hinting for more money, but how he could be content uh, no matter what God sent his way, abundance or very little. But he nevertheless was very grateful for their attention and their love and their, their gift that they sent his way. Then there was a man who brought the gift. There was Epaphroditus or Epaphras. And uh, he had gotten into some kind of physical difficulty and had been risking his life in some kind of a dangerous activity. We don't know what. But the people in Philippi were concerned about him. And Paul, as his second uh, tell us in this book is concerned to make it clear that he is all right and that he has been a great blessing to Paul uh, as he was in his midst. Then of course there was the the problem of the two women in the church, odious and soon touchy. Uh, <clears throat> these two gals who, uh, who were building factions in the church in Philippi and uh, they were probably uh, gathering groups of people behind them and uh, they were heading up this disunity that was building in that church. And Paul is very concerned to bring about unity in the church in, in Philippi. And then of course there was the problem of his imprisonment. He begins with that message. He says, uh, what has happened to me has happened rather, and it's very interesting the way that word rather 
comes in there at the beginning of that letter. Rather than what you say. I mean, the preacher doesn't get up on Sunday morning and say to you, uh, rather, as the first thing that he says right out of his mouth. You say, rather than what? Well, they knew what. They were beginning to question God's providential workings in the lives of his servants. Here was the greatest missionary of all, the Apostle Paul, who had been shelved now for several years, who uh, was in prison and couldn't get around and minister the gospel. And so uh, he makes it clear to them, what has happened to me has happened rather to further the gospel. And he begins to tell them how uh, there was this tremendous new mission field among the Praetorian Guard, uh, some 16,000 men there around Caesar's palace, uh, and they had all, in one way or another, uh, been exposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. How wonderful that was. Uh, crack men who were the very best that Rome had to offer, men who in the few years after this, uh, some of whom came to know Christ, would go up in throughout Europe and carry the gospel for the first time to some of the places where some of your ancestors came from. And Paul had this whole new mission field that was given to him there in prison. Uh, he turned his uh, prison cell into a semi seminary. And uh, that was a wonderful experience. I'm sure that there were some, as Paul looked at that manacle on his hand, he didn't look at his own sore wrist. He looked down the chain to the man on the other end, and he said, captive audience. <clears throat> and here was this man for that many that many uh, days or years as he was uh, exposed to the Apostle Paul, heard the gospel again and again, and surely some of those men were converted. And you can understand how they'd want to get back there into that cell with Paul and hear more about the gospel. And they became early preachers there in Caesar's own household in his palace. Well, <clears throat> Paul says that, and he also says, there are many others now who are preaching the gospel. Some had bad motives, but the gospel was being preached. That's the key thing. And so he says, uh, I rejoice that all kinds of people are coming out of the woodwork who used to say, let Paul do it. But now, since Paul was immobilized and couldn't get around the Mediterranean world, uh, they were coming out of the woodwork, and they were out there proclaiming the gospel of Christ. So he makes that point as one of the purposes of his letter, to set them straight about God's providence. God had not abandoned Paul. God was using Paul in a new mission field in a new way. And so you see the tele, the overall tele of that book, the purposes for which it was written. And when you come to those sections in which those overall tele are, then the subtele under those ought to be preached with that in mind. For example, in that second chapter of uh, Philippians, we might just take a look there today and uh, look at the second chapter in verse 12 where some people have something of a difficulty where he says then so the, so then my dear friends just as you have always obeyed before not only when i am present but even more so when i am absent work out your own salvation with fear and trembling now some people have thought that that means that you have to be saved by good works obviously those who are here today know that that couldn't be so. The Philippians knew that couldn't be so because they had been saved by faith. Uh, the grace of God brought faith to their hearts and they believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. And already in this letter, Paul had addressed them as saints in the very first verse of the letter. So he's not talking about their eternal salvation. 
And some people, because they have difficulty understanding this passage, have drummed up little cutesy phrases and sayings like, uh, what God worked in, we must work out, or God uh, uh, gave us the bud and we have to bring it to a flower, and all those kinds of things, because they don't understand the telos in which this occurs. Actually, it begins in verse 27 of chapter 1 where you begin to see some of the same interest and concerns that you see in verse 12 of chapter 2. He's talking about not being there and whether I come and see you or continue to be absent. Uh, and so he's talking about what they need to do since he could not be in their presence to straighten out this problem that was occurring between these two women. Now he doesn't mention them until later on in the book because he comes first uh, to deal with the positive issue of unity and what will bring unity. And so he begins to talk about unity there in the first chapter. And by the way, all the chapter headings in the Bible are, were added many years later. They were not inspired and learn to read right through from one chapter to another because often uh, these chapters that were put into our Bibles uh, by men riding around Europe on horseback occurred when occurred when the uh, horse stepped into a pothole and the pen slipped and uh, so we we have one of those experiences here uh, it begins this this section begins in chapter 1 verse 27 and continues through 213 and he's saying i cannot be there but even though i'm not there i want to hear this about you that you're standing firm in one spirit struggling shoulder to shoulder with one soul for the faith and he goes on into chapter 2, if there is any fellowship that comes from the Spirit, if there's any feeling of affection and compassion, make my joy complete by thinking alike, having mutual love, being united in soul, thinking as one, the stress on unity. Before he deals with the disunity, he wants to give the principles that will bring about unity. And then he gives those two principles in verses 3 and 4 where he says, do nothing out of selfishness or vanity, but rather in humility consider others better than yourselves. Put the other person first rather than yourself. And then he says, each one of you should not only look out for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Now he's going to demonstrate in the greatest possible way what that means. And so he looks at the Lord Jesus Christ, and he says, have this mind in you which was in Christ Jesus. What was that mind? This is not some kind of a, a statement that hangs out there on the line all by itself. It is a very practical statement in the way that Paul uses it here. He who had all the honor and all the glory and all the manifestation of his deity in heaven laid aside that, not his deity, but those, those visible manifestations of it, and became a man as well as God. And when he became a man, his deity was veiled by his humanity. And that deity uh, was there. But when he became a man, he now took not only humanity, but a very humble position. He was like a slave. And not just a slave, but like a slave who died and not just one who died, but one who died the most ignominious death of all. Down, 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 he, Paul places the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Why is he saying these things about him? Because he has something in mind. 
He has an intention. He has a purpose. And the purpose is to get people to bring themselves down off of their position that they have assumed that is unlike the position of the Lord Jesus who had a right to it. And he wants them to put others before himself because that's what Jesus did. He was thinking about you and about me and for our sakes he humbled himself. And because he did, God gave him the name Lord, which is above every other name, so that at that name, eventually, every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that Jesus is the Lord to the glory of our God. And then comes the verse, 2.12. So then, he says, so then, even though I couldn't be with you, I want you to work out your own salvation or solution to this problem of difficulty. In verse 19 of chapter 1, he had already used the word salvation in a way that didn't have to do with our eternal salvation. He used it much the way that David uses the word to save in the book of Psalms when he's saved from the hands of his enemy or from a difficult situation when somebody is pursuing him. Here in 119, he's talking about the fact that their prayers would lead to the gift of the Spirit in such fullness that he would be able to get through the experience of standing before the emperor of the world and preaching the gospel. And he wanted to get through that in such a way that he would come out on the other side not having de denied his Lord but having stood up very powerfully for him before Nero, that infamous beast uh, of an emperor. And so here was the Apostle Paul uh, using the word salvation already in that form to get through a difficult situation successfully. And here he's using it once more. Work out your own solution to this problem. I can't be with you. I'm in prison. But you always obeyed me in the past. Now obey me all the more that I can't be with you. And work out your own solution to this thing. With fear and trembling was a phrase that he often used to mean being very cautious, being very careful that you don't make things worse rather than better as you seek to resolve problems. And then he gives us in verse 13 the capstone of the whole business where he says you're not really alone. He says since it is God who is producing in you both the willingness and the ability to do the things that please him. God will be with you even though I can't be. Now you see then you don't have to do cutesy little things like saying what God worked in, you work out. This is not really talking about sanctification as such. Uh, it's an aspect of sanctification, of course, to be uh, in unity with your brothers. But it's not just a message on sanctification. It's a message on unity. Unity where you have to bring it about with others when you have nobody else to help you. And when you get that and grasp that idea, it's a powerful message. And you don't have to play games with 2.12 and do all sorts of things to try to help people to understand what it never did say in the first place. So the telos, the purpose of the passage is so important in understanding and preaching the scriptures. Now, how do you discover that telos? And I said you need to do the analytical work of, of all those uh, various processes that are taught to you in a seminary that I mentioned yesterday. But there are also a few other helps. Uh, not always present, but when they're there, don't miss them. There are telic 
cues in the Bible. For example, in 1 Thessalonians, uh, the fourth chapter, verse 13. In 1 Thessalonians uh, 4.13, I have 5.13, no wonder it didn't read properly. We have that great passage on the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now, what was the telos? What was the purpose? What was the reason why we have this passage here in this place? Well, we know that uh, there were people unsettling the minds of the Thessalonian church. From the second book of uh, Thessalonians, we get more information about that. Some were saying that nobody would die before Christ returned. And of course, that was very wrong. And Paul said, I don't know how you got this idea, whether it came from uh, some letter purported to be from me or whether it came by word of mouth or however you got it, but I understand that some of you are troubled about this matter and I want to set you straight about it. And he was already working on it here in the first chapter, uh, in the first book, excuse me. And uh, so some of them probably had died already and they needed hope. They were confused. Were these brothers and sisters who... Uh, who uh, profess their faith in Christ, ingenuine about their faith? Uh, here they are, dead, and uh, Christ has not yet returned. And this false teaching, therefore, was confusing and unsettling to them. Paul writes in order to straighten that matter out and to bring hope, to bring joy and to bring comfort into their lives in that time of distress and uncertainty. And the facts about death are what he is presenting here so that they will not be unsettled in their faith. And notice how he speaks about those facts. He says at, in verse 18, therefore comfort or encourage one another with these words. That's a tillic cue. It tells you how to use the passage, how to use the material. It tells you what its purpose was, why Paul gave it to us. He did not give it to us so that we could hit each other over the head with our eschatological positions. He did not give it to us so that we could defeat the next person who presented a false view of eschatology. But he gave it to us in order that we might be encouraged and comforted and that we might understand the facts of death. Those are wonderful words. And you notice in verse 13 there's more of that cueing given by Paul as he introduces this section from of 13 through 18. We don't want you to be ignorant. We're going to give you the facts so that you won't be, brothers, about those who sleep, so that you won't grieve as others who have no hope. You have hope. I want to instill hope in you by these facts that I'm presenting about death and about the coming of the Lord and the resurrection and the rest of it. And so that's the purpose for which the passage really ought to be used. This is a passage of comfort and encouragement to those whose loved ones have gone before and, and who are wondering about what happened to them and what their future will be. Here in very explicit terms, uh, the Apostle Paul sets forth their future and their fate. In 2 Peter, for example, you also have some uh, telic cues that are given in that book. In verses 12 to 15, he tells us why he wrote. He says, I, therefore, I shall not neglect to remind you continually about these things, even though you are established in the truth about which I am now writing. 
I'm going to remind you of some things that you already know about, you already have settled in your thinking, but you need to be reminded of them. And then he goes on to say in 13, I think it is right as long as I'm in this tent to stir you up by reminding you. And then in verse 15 he says, I also shall do everything I can to make it possible for you to remember these things after my departure. Peter is reminding them of the various truths that this book contains because he knew from his own personal experience how easy it was to forget. Peter was the man who forgot. He was the man to whom the Lord Jesus said, you'll deny me three times before the cock crows. And then it says, when that cock did crow the third time, Peter remembered what the Lord said. He had forgotten up to that point, even though the Lord had warned him and given him ample opportunity to think about that matter. He didn't want those to whom he was writing to fall into such despair and discouragement as had been his during that experience. He wanted them to remember and hold fast to the truths that they had been taught so that they too would not have to experience the pain of denying their Lord the way he had by his words there in the courtyard and in various other places. And so Peter's purpose is, is clear. It stands out right at the outset. Now purpose, or tell us then, is a controlling factor in putting a message together. And that's what I've been trying to say these two days. I want to talk to you just very briefly about stance in preaching. Nobody ever talks about stance. I like to use words people don't use because you, you have no, no uh, freight to scrape away. Uh, stance, your relationship as a preacher to the congregation and to the Bible is what I'm talking about. Your stance in relationship to these two elements in the preaching situation. There is such a thing as the lecture stance, which has so often been taught preachers, and which in most of the textbooks about homiletics is the method that is taught. And it becomes something that conflicts with the telic control and emphasis that I have been stressing these two days. The <clears throat> stance of the lecturer rather than the preacher is something like this. That stance is that the preacher speaks to the congregation about the Bible. He speaks to the congregation about the Bible. And when he talks, it sounds like this. David, blah, 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 he. Or Paul and Silas, la 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 la, they. It's past tense. It's abstract, and it's long ago and far away when God used to do things back in Bible times. That's the way so much so-called preaching really turns out. It's lecturing. Instead of that, I'm calling on you to take a preaching stance rather than a lecturing stance, which is a very different thing. It goes like this. The preacher preaches to the congregation, so far everything is the same, about the congregation in relationship to God and their neighbors from the Bible. He doesn't put the Bible over here somewhere 
under examination and talk about it, and then at the end of the message kind of tack on, oh, by the way, here's what it has to do with you. He doesn't say, here's what happened to the Amalekites, and the boys in the back row are wondering who in the world are the Amalekites and who cares. And so they begin to make book on how many times the preacher buttons and unbuttons his coat. And then finally at the end he says, oh, by the way, here's what this has to do with you. And maybe if they are a little bit interested, they've forgotten everything he said to apply to them. No. The whole message from the beginning is a message to the congregation in front of him, a message that is contemporary in nature, a message from God to his congregation that is here and now, that is concrete, and that is not long ago and far away, but very personal to them as they sit there before God's messenger, God's herald, bringing truth to them today where they live. There's all the difference in the world between a preaching stance and a lecturing stance. The lecturer talks about the Bible and then says, here is what it has to do with you if he has time. But the preacher takes this stance. He says, from the very get-go, he says, I have a message for you. You, this congregation, from the Bible, from God, who wrote these words through his servants, the prophets and apostles who wrote. And so I want you to get that and take that away with you today. We're going to talk a little bit more tomorrow about how you format that, how you put that kind of thing together, how you, you get it in gear and how you deliver it to people. But today I just want this to trickle down at the end of this lecture, the difference between a message to the congregation in front of you that the book was written not just for people long ago and far away, but it was written for your congregation. Remember, that's what Paul says about the Old Testament. He says to the Corinthians, these things were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. The Bible wasn't written just as a nice exercise to know something about the history of Israel and the history of God's work with them. That is true. It's there. But that book was written in order that a message might be delivered to your congregation today, which is every bit as contemporary as it could possibly be. Preach the Bible as a message from God to your people about their lives before God and their lives before their neighbors. And you will begin to see some results in your preaching rather than just talking about what God used to do many years ago as a lecturer often does. Let's close in prayer. <clears throat> Father, you're a good God to us. You have given us a book which is every bit a message that we need to understand and apply to our lives as a book that was written to the Philippians or to the congregation which Jude addressed or Paul or John. And we pray our God that we may never preach this book as something out of date as something in which the Spirit of God is not active today, but that we may preach it as a book which has power and which is a living message, alive and quick, that reaches down into the thoughts and the intents of our hearts. Oh God, give us wisdom to know the right stance toward the Bible and toward our people as we preach. And Lord, make us ministers of the Word as we bring that Word with power, efficiency, and effectiveness to our people week by week.
For we pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and for his sake alone. Amen.